0: Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 54 Justice League Exclusive Trailer I have so many
1: questions. Then of course there's the
0: question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question.
2: Start asking questions. You're the answer son.
0: Welcome to Mosaic, I'm your DC Films Apologist Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love The Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe. This episode I react to 4 minutes of Justice League footage from San Diego Comic Con 2017. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC Films and who love to chew their food. (laughs) Ha! Long time no see, but what a reason for reunion. This year's San Diego Comic Con offered up an opportunity to capitalize on the success and reception of Wonder Woman and build up excitement and anticipation for Justice League and beyond. And I'm glad that they delivered. There's a whole cornucopia of news, but this episode is just about those generous four minutes of footage providing a sneak peek at Justice League. Let's get right into it. The first seven seconds are cut to score and pump up the audience for this exclusive trailer. It begins proper with a crime committed. We get the silenced weapon trope as a guard is killed, and a little bit of inordinate focus on a briefcase which I'm sure will pay off later in the film. Most likely, it contains explosives. Why? Well, for reference, we're in the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales, commonly known as Old Bailey. It has a 12-foot golden lady justice atop it, which unlike most depictions, is not blindfolded. Major criminal cases are held there, and the trials are open to the public, but like any court, subject to security. Old Bailey was built in 1909, so it would have been around when Diana was in London during the First World War. Old Bailey was bombed back in 1941 and rebuilt with a modern extension with distinct windows and styling, which is what we see in an exterior shot with an explosion causing UK law enforcement to duck. We know that they're UK police not only from the Old Bailey exterior, but from the Brattenburg livery, that blue and yellow checkered pattern which makes police vehicles highly visible and distinct. Obviously, this is a high-stakes crime considering that it's being committed in broad daylight with CCTV inside and throughout London, with an entire crew of heavily armed, unmasked men willing to murder without hesitation, take children hostage, and commit a crime like this against a symbol of law and order. Wonder Woman isn't having it. She explodes into the scene with supernatural force. She dodges a rifle round shot from a security guard, seemingly with ease. points on that, the first may perhaps unintentionally imply that Wonder Woman has become even faster since BVS, and this is arguably consistent with my theory that being a public hero can boost her abilities, but more likely this is just a fun flourish, which taken to its logical extreme causes all sorts of problems which we're just gonna have to hand wave now that we're getting so many speedsters on the team, like that silenced pistol before and the trope-laden nature of this crime, not even 20 seconds into the substance, and it's saying this is going to be more familiar superhero fare. We're going to follow genre conventions for action and superheroes as you've known and expected. So it's okay to relax and not hold this to the higher documentary level realism standard, even if the film gives us so many authentic beats like a location steeped in history and meaning. A second point about that security guard is that it shows that this crime is so outrageous and has an inside man, and an armed one at that. Generally, most. UK police aren't armed and neither are many government guards. Metro police go by a slogan, policing by consent, rather than by force. Nevertheless, in light of recent terror attacks, guards have been armed, making this split-second image incredibly contemporary and reflective of our real-world troubles. But getting back to the action, Wonder Woman dodges the bullet and she takes a buttstock strike to the back of the head, like it's nothing, and apparently takes care of the threat. We cut to Diana working on restoring a marble statute in a joke that's a continuation of Dry Irony. She isn't saying anything that's overtly humorous as a joke in and of itself. It's only with audience knowledge, participation, and interpretation does it become funny. We know what Diana was doing, and we know how thrilling and interesting it was. And with that dramatic irony, the line is funny. And while it's just a split second, if you want to get into it, there's still a lot to chew on. The joke is the juxtaposition of what we know and what Diana says. And that idea of juxtaposition continues throughout. At Old Bailey, we saw for. Violence, explosiveness, and strength. And here there is calm care, delicacy, and civility. We had the colors and exceptional chaos, and now the white and the completely conventional co worker talk. Armed security at Old Bailey and London Terror is terribly contemporary and fixed by an ancient Amazon warrior princess. And here, An ancient artistic artifact is a picture of the distant past and fixed by a modern, fashionable young woman. Even within the statement, we can ask interesting questions like is Diana still trying to say some sort of truth? Does she consider Diana Prince a different persona who didn't do anything interesting last weekend? And one last point on perception versus truth with respect to the statue she's working on. It's interesting that white marble has been the norm since the Renaissance. Artists like Michelangelo taking the bare stone at face value and emulating what they believed to be an ancient aesthetic, thus paving the way for neoclassicism and forever cementing lily-white statues as our paradigm for Greek art. However, archaeologists have analyzed original fragments to find that they were traditionally brightly pigmented. In truth, the statues were polychromatic, with their eyes painted in and their subjects brought to life in living color. We can read into that some more some other time, but just briefly consider what that means from Diana's perspective, as she's seen on so many fronts how secondhand narratives shape history and what's believed to be true. (laughs) As usual, I'm rambling, and I'm gonna ramble some more because the next shot gives us some more great juxtaposition. In the foreground, we have The Shard, the tallest tower in Europe outside of Russia. The Shard places us squarely, in London and in contemporary times. If you dial back a decade, it isn't a part of the skyline. But over the River Thames, we see the 123-year-old Tower Bridge, a landmark that appears in Wonder Woman's first visit to London. From it hangs a giant black banner, gently rippling in the wind, bearing Superman's crest. What Zack Snyder called the third character in Batman v Superman, the media, comes in a quick cacophony of overlapping statements about the demise of Superman. The world remains in mourning after the death of Superman. On a raining evening, we see Superman's statue still shattered at Heroes Park. Moments earlier, Diana was restoring one statue. This one has yet to be repaired. There's a crime wave around the world. A Daily Planet headline, also in the rain, stating, World Without Hope. As commentators ask, and where's the Gotham Bat? We see Gordon flipping the switch on the bat signal. The commentator continues, The masked vigilante has been a no-show, so Batman hasn't been responding to the call. Instead, we see him perched above Heroes Park, overlooking the scout ship. His intentions unknown. In terms of the plot, this period helps explain the preparations and upgrades that are going to appear in this film, which weren't deployed during his battle with Superman. We get the Age of Heroes line and a new perspective on approaching Themyscira. Urgency is created by the music and the dialogue. They need heroes, they have no more time, and something is coming. And we get our first shot of a boom tube, which appears as a vertical pillar instead of a horizontal portal. (laughs) This is scientifically satisfying to me because a pillar can always be orthogonal to the surface of the planet, but I digress. This is our first glimpse at Steppenwolf and I'll wager a subsequent one for the Amazons. Why? Well, first, the Amazons must have some appreciation of the Mother Box and what it means to be surrounding it. Second, given the number and the stance of the Amazons surrounding it, they were preparing for something incoming, and Antiope would be expected to be a part of that preparation if she were alive. Third, it appears that Steppenwolf arrives with multitude and ships during the history lesson, so he wouldn't have to travel by boomtube back then. Additionally, if this is after Diana's departure, it does give the Amazons an additional mission which makes them a little less callous to the world. If they are caretakers of dangerous artifacts like these, then Hippolyta couldn't just send the Amazons off to assist Diana against Ares because that would leave these world-ending artifacts unguarded. Maybe. In either case, we know that Steppenwolf survives his encounter with an entire island of Amazons, which amplifies how dangerous he is. And this is reinforced by what we see and hear next. Our first glimpse of Aquaman underwater in Justice League and Steppenwolf saying, no protectors here. Considering all the effort that goes into such a short shot, from what I can see here... It was worth it. I'll gush all about it some other time, play you some clips about how hard it is to simulate underwater scenes, but moving on, we see Diana in Gotham City at night seemingly sensing something, and then Cyborg looking through a smashed window. No lanterns. And I gasp, did he just say that? We have a shot overlooking the glass house, then Bruce's brow furrowed and his arms crossed as he stares at a Superman hologram. No Kryptonian and DC's cosmology explodes with those four words, and Superman's reputation crosses the stars and civilizations. A surreal scene of Barry putting his finger through a pane of glass at super speed, and we return to the history lesson for the first explicit exhibition of Steppenwolf's power. Even as he's backed by starships which blot out the sky and hordes of parademons, a single strike of his glowing axe causes the ground to erupt into arcs of molten rock and driving Earth's forces back. To Steppenwolf, this is all rote. This world will fall like all the others. Of course, the obvious inference is that with Green Lanterns or a Kryptonian, Earth would have had protectors and possibly not fall like all the others. But we'll see. We get Alfred's commentary about the respective planetary stakes of a job for the Justice League versus an oddball encounter against the Penguin and then we're immediately shown Steppenwolf's inner sanctum to show that this is anything but wind-up penguins, as parademons ascend into a blood-red sky. The stakes are again reinforced by Aquaman's prediction, and with the stakes set as a good storytelling trailer does, a response is mounted. Batman uses his analysis and introspection to assess that each of us is in some way held back, and we know how that's gonna get followed up in the film. Encouragement, teamwork, uniting to reach their full potential. Together. Wonder Woman uses her experience with Doomsday and the death of Superman. Don't engage alone. We do this together. Like I had hoped last episode, we see Wonder Woman and Batman step up in terms of leadership. Not just being experienced heroes in their own right, but being able to lead other heroes too. The trailer gives us a taste for that character arc with Flash who expresses his doubts and which works well as humor, mostly because it's true. From Lex's surveillance footage to his Suicide Squad cameo, it's his modus operandi and it's a funny observation to call out. Conversely, Cyborg steps into his own, confidently reassuring Alfred and turning the Nightcrawler into an extension of his own body. I'm actually invested in how Cyborg takes a tragic accident and transforms it into being a hero under the influence of the Justice League now, because it's that character arc that drives the creation and the justification for the team, and as if to cement that understanding over a series of action shots we get Batman's voiceover, Superman has become a beacon to the world. He didn't just save people, he made them see the best parts of themselves. So I want to briefly stop on this because I know there's going to be detractors and critics of this claiming that it's a retcon, or it's disingenuous, it's contradictory, or it's unearned. And this comes from two places. First, a failure to feel what Batman is expressing, and second, a failure to understand the facts of the previous films, and appreciate them empathetically. With respect to the first point, it's falling prey to the fallacy of personal incredulity. Despite knowing for a fact that others can and do feel what Batman says, the person under this fallacy decides that it's not true because it's difficult for them to understand or have that feeling. Remember that BVS was intended as a debate, a conversation and an exploration of so many of the ideas, tropes, positions, and policies that we take for granted and as assumptions with superheroes generally and Superman specifically. And Batman too. It's silly that some say that they should have made Superman more sympathetic, more superheroic, more well-spoken, so that we'd side with him. That completely undermines the intention of the film. At that point, you'd simply side with the sympathetic Sterling Superman, and everything he stands for and says. There be no examination, no challenge, no debate, no discussion, no consideration of power, politics, perception, or innocence. In an optimistic world, with faith in humanity, you can have that discussion and still come out wanting Superman to succeed, as many do. But what does it say about you if you condemn an innocent Superman who saves people just because he was silent, just because he didn't win you over with charisma, emotion, or encouragement? Just because he didn't charm you with his persona? If his actions didn't speak, if his attempts didn't speak, what does it say that you're only willing to take him at his word? And then, even then, would you really? After all, aren't you refusing to take Batman at his? The critic says, no, 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 you don't really feel that way. You couldn't. The critic says that they weren't manipulated into being better, or they didn't see that on the screen. And it becomes instructive to quote Wonder Woman here. But then, I glimpsed the darkness that lives within their light, and I learned that inside of each and every one of them, there will always be both. A choice each must make for themselves, something no hero will ever defeat. No hero can make you better against your will. It's a choice you make, and it's the illustration presented by a beacon. A beacon is a passive and undirected signal. A beacon is not interactive or for a single target. A lighthouse warns everyone. It's not a two-way radio call to a specific ship. The critics keep claiming they don't see Superman specifically interacting or targeting someone for influence. (laughs) But that's not a beacon. Batman picked his example carefully. Why do you think Batman used the word beacon? A beacon isn't responsible if you cross your arms and say, make me feel, make me moral. It isn't responsible if you decide to run ashore or run away. Batman isn't claiming that Superman is some irresistible force or imposition upon people, or that Superman was somebody who actively campaigned specifically to convert or create that behavior in individuals. That's a ridiculous claim. No one knows better than Batman that Superman didn't do that. They couldn't have come to blows after 18 months into Superman's career if it was otherwise. And nonetheless, once Batman was freed from his anger, skepticism, and bile, once bitterness no longer blinded him like Wallace Keefe, somebody who sees every heroic act as an insult rather than a call to arms and similar acts, Batman recognizes that Superman was set upon the world stage, capable of being a tyrant or burning everything down, or he could simply stop helping people altogether. But Superman decided what kind of man he wanted to be. And Batman is saying that that public example creates the opportunity for people to reflect upon their better selves. Again, it's not Superman specifically interacting with you to cause this, because that's not a beacon. Clark doesn't sit Pete down and preach to him about forgiveness, acceptance, and altruism. No, Clark uses his gifts for good, and that inspires altruism in Pete. Clark's record of heroism, his then transparent humanity and vulnerability, inspires change in Lois, where she chooses to put humanity and a person ahead of a story. Clark doing his best to turn aside the Kryptonians turns Colonel Hardy from somebody willing to shoot all Kryptonians on sight into an ally who vouches for him. This man is not our enemy, and Clark inspires courage in Jonathan, wisdom in Martha, and makes Wonder Woman believe in teamwork and Batman a better man by his own reckoning. If those examples are too small, then let's look at the world at large. It's obviously our impulse to fear, doubt, and tear down. But you have to remember, for nearly two years, Superman was a source of wonder, awe, and pure benevolence. The world has been so caught up in what Superman can do. The love affair with the man in the sky. The beloved monument at Heroes Park. They say Superman's a hero. If you seek his monument, we lose a national hero. The facts are all there, in all the films, both in story and out, people sincerely feel the way expressly put on screen and said aloud, showing that this is consistent And earned. Considering all the content behind the statement, the examples, the arc, the journey, the humility, the regret, and the current quest to meet that standard, it seems like it can only ring hollow if you start to discard all the evidence in order to make space for your criticism. And all that said, unless you're dead set to disagree, at a minimum, the statement indicates an intention that that be the case continuing onward. And it's pretty petty to stamp it out and refuse it without seeing what's presented out of resentment towards the past. If the bloody Batman can let go, what does it say if you can't? Well that was way too much on that point, let's get back to the trailer. I have an analysis here trying to splice together the shots to get an idea of how many action sequences we're going to get, but I'm going to hold off on that. We get the exchange, I don't recognize this world, and then Bruce replies, we don't have to recognize it, we just have to save it. And that is very much Superman's philosophy imprinted upon Batman proof of his effect. Basically, over the course of two films, Superman's world kept getting turned upside down. He discovers his power of flight, which suddenly opens up his access and impact to the entire planet. He's outed and confronted by the Kryptonians, which forces him to fight, He has a brief honeymoon period, but then that world is transformed into one where his every action is criticized and which comes with unintended consequences. And in every case, Superman didn't do what Batman had tried. The world only makes sense if you force it to. Instead, Superman did not put upon the world his order and judgment, but instead simply sought to save it. Wonder Woman learned a similar lesson long ago. It's not about what the world deserves, it's about what you believe. And in no sense did the world deserve Superman. But he still believed it should be saved. He believed it so strongly that he died doing it. And the League believes it so strongly that they're going to try, even though, this is crazy, honestly, I think we're all going to die and they're going to do it together, you can't save the world alone. Seriously, (laughs) when the major themes and lessons and character motivations all come together cohesively like this, are consistent like this, and weave a story like this, it makes me really excited about Justice League. If you were worried that Justice League was just going to be a turn-off-your-brains affair, I feel like this trailer shows that we're still going to get a multi-layered movie, while bringing a broader audience in, as was always intended, Speaking of themes, like on that point of judgment and justice, I forgot to say that it's significant that Wonder Woman is in the Old Bailey because it shows that she's upholding humanity's justice, not just forcing divine justice upon humanity. And granted, there's almost no moral dilemma in intervening here, but the point is that Wonder Woman now feels comfortable acting out in the light towards those ends. Man, I'm out of time. There's still so much to talk about. Chernobyl, the charge of the Amazons, Mera, the flying fox, Gordon, and that last scene with Alfred. Not to mention all the stuff outside the trailer. The cast had another opportunity to shine and they were all so incredibly charismatic each in their own way. I can't help but love this cast and want to see each and every one of them do well in all their endeavors. And once again, I have rambled on too long. My single favorite shot is that same one used as the thumbnail for this trailer. It appears to be daylight. Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Flash, and Cyborg are in Heroes Park beyond the police barricade with the flowers and the candles standing on the steps to Superman's statue. And the camera is in motion, descending downward just slightly. And the interesting thing is the reaction. The onlooking officers aren't alarmed or reaching for their sidearms. One is on his radio. Aquaman stands with the tip of his weapon down. Cyborg and Flash seem slightly astonished. But Wonder Woman? Wonder Woman is smiling. I wonder why. Who does she know that these guys don't? <laughs> that said, remember Cyborg ends up saving a cop from a flying, flaming, armored vehicle. You should probably move. Who has that kind of strength and heat-related abilities? <laughs> Well, that's a topic for another time, but I'm already all in. I literally don't have time for a sign-off, but if I have time in editing, you'll probably get the following clips. Background on Old Bailey, Background on The Shard, Background on Tower Bridge, A clip about Greek art and color, A clip about Chernobyl, Gao Godot on Superman in Justice League, Jeff Johns on the DC Film Slate, and a clip about creating that iconic Jurassic Park water ripple effect.
2: you're the answer son
1: most famous court in the world and today it celebrates its 100th birthday. The Old Bailey is marking its centenary with a visit from the Queen but before that Mike Ramsden's been taking a look around. Mike Ramsden, BBC London News at the Old Bailey, the most important criminal court in the land. There are 18 courtrooms linked by imposing waiting areas that usually bustle with lawyers, the relatives of those on trial and journalists. For a hundred years these courts have been trying the most serious criminal cases which have carried the most severe penalties. The old is built on the site of the old Newgate Jail, and the gory past of that era has been preserved in the design of this building. This is the site of the condemned man's cell, which makes this dead man's walk. These arches are no optical illusion. They get thinner and lower as the prisoner approaches their fate.
3: The idea was that the condemned person was frankly left with no choice in turning round. So, as you get to the bottom here, there is absolutely no space for that person to turn round. As they went down the end there, they met their maker at the drop.
1: The building's most famous statue is Justice. She survived the blitz, though the building was left severely damaged. And in 1973, the IRA attacked with a car bomb. All that remains of that is a glass shard left embedded high in a wall by the force of the blast. But each time, the old bailey has been rebuilt, and the the process of justice goes on. It will be the same in 100 years time. The way we go about our business I repeat, in terms of the presentation of evidence will have changed, but the fundamentals will be just the same. Mike Ramsden, BBC London
2: News. You're the answer, son.
4: The Central Criminal Court of England, also known as the Old Bailey. The courthouse is located about 200 yards north of St. Paul's Cathedral. It is named after a wall, or bailey, that was built there where the court now stands. Old Bailey has medieval origins, but was destroyed in the Great London Fire of 1666. It was rebuilt many times, but cases have been heard there for hundreds of years. There were other additions to the courtroom, such as a mirror that would reflect sunlight onto the face of the accused. This was to see if the defendant looked guilty or truthful during his or her testimony. The Old Bailey's jurisdiction eventually expanded outside of London to include England and acted as a kind of supreme court for major cases. In the 19th century, there was a jail next to the courthouse called Newgate Prison. Criminals would have to take the dead man's walk from Old Bailey to the gallows right outside the prison. The walk itself was notorious because of the crowds that would form around the prison procession. Citizens were allowed to throw fruit, vegetables, and stones at the criminal. In 1807, when one such crowd got too rowdy, a stand was overturned, killing 28 people. After that, a secret tunnel was created that would ferry convicted men or women out of the jail without having to face the crowd. The Old Bailey has seen many famous old murder cases, and it is a still functioning courthouse today. You're the answer, son.
1: It's three times the height of Big Ben, the equivalent of nearly 70 double decker buses stacked on top of each other, and it cost £1.5 billion to build.
5: The Shard in central London is being officially opened today, and at 310 metres tall, it's Europe's newest and tallest skyscraper.
3: You can see why it's called the Shard. It's covered in 11,000 panes of glass that never quite meet at the top. Built in just three years with money from the government of Qatar, it will be home to offices, restaurants, a hotel and exclusive flats, the highest apartments in Western Europe. The Shard has divided, you could say splintered critical opinion. Some saying it looks as though it's landed from outer space, ruins the skyline and would Be much more at home in somewhere like Dubai. For others, the building is ethereal, magical, like a 21st-century church spire.
1: This building was not going to be a symbol of arrogance, a symbol of power, but more like a sparkling, quite gentle spire.
3: Love it or loathe it, you can't miss it. The Shard stands in splendid isolation, south of the Thames, in a break from normal planning rules, away from other tall buildings. Inaugurated today, it will open to the public next year. Even at £25 ahead and in bad weather the view of london from the top is breathtaking you're the answer son Tell
5: Bridge, which spans the Thames near the Tower of London, is one of the capital's most instantly recognisable landmarks. It was built in 1894 in response to huge public pressure to ease congestion over London Bridge. Although there were several bridges to the west of London Bridge by the mid-19th century, there were none to the east, and by the 1880s, it was taking carriages literally hours to cross London Bridge. Plans for the bridge were controversial. It was feared that the bridge would staunch the flow of river traffic to Pool of London, the area of river further downstream from London Bridge. This was the commercial hub of the British Empire, and so it was essential that a drawbridge of sorts would be designed. In 1876, a competition was held to see who could design the new crossing. It was won by Horace Jones and John Wolfe Barry, son of Charles Barry, who designed the Houses of Parliament. Construction started in 1886 and took eight years and the result was the largest, most sophisticated bascule bridge in the world at that time. Bascule means seesaw in French. A bascule bridge is a drawbridge with a counterweight. Tower Bridge has two bascules weighing 1,000 tons each, which were raised using a hydraulic lifting mechanism powered by enormous steam engines. The steam engines were in operation until 1976 when the system was electrified. When the Port of London was at its busiest, the bridge would be lifted several times a day. Although the towers seem like solid stone, and indeed were designed to fit in with the architecture of the nearby Tower of London, they are in fact huge steel skeletons clad in Cornish granite and Portland stone. A unique feature of the bridge is the elevated walkways, 143 feet above the Thames, which were designed to allow pedestrians to cross the bridge when the lower part of the bridge was raised. However, this upper level soon became a hangout for thieves and prostitutes, and was closed in 1910. Fortunately, the public was given access to the walkway again in 1982 with the opening of a permanent exhibition inside the bridge called the Tower Bridge Exhibition. You're the answer, son. We're
6: looking at a Greco-Roman sculpture from the Cantor Collections to analyze it for traces of paint.
0: This is a story about a new look at ancient Greco-Roman
6: statues. When we often think of these marble sculptures, we think of them as white and austere and pretty much unpainted. And that's actually probably as far as you can get from the actual truth. These sculptures were often very brightly painted. Right now I'm using the black light to look at the surface.
0: It is also a story about mixing science and art.
6: You can see a little yeah, bit of the discoloration. Yeah, and,
0: there. Yeah. Stanford sophomore Ivy Nguyen, a chemical engineering major, is using black light to delve into how and why these painted ladies came to be.
6: She's 2,000 years old and she dates back from the time of King Herod, about 25 AD to 79 AD.
0: Now a replica is on display in the Canner Arts Center, painted to look the way she might have been in 79 AD.
6: This exhibition has two main points that we want to illustrate. One, that these sculptures were brightly painted, and while it's one thing to look at a blank marble sculpture and think, oh, this might have been red and this might have been yellow, it's a very, very different experience to see that in person. Mm -hmm. Science and art, while traditionally thought of as very different and very distinct fields, almost immiscible fields, can actually be used to complement each other. brings the sculpture to life, actually, in a way that is surprising.
2: You're the answer, son. We all remember
7: Jurassic Park, Steven Spielberg's 1993 dinosaur epic about the dangers of leaving Newman in charge of your security. Special effects were a big deal at the time, due in large part to this man.
2: My name is Michael Lanteri. I designed the special dinosaur effects on Jurassic Park.
7: And while that included epic scenes with the raptors and the T-Rex, there was one special effects sequence that proved a lot more challenging than
2: the rest. It was the rippling water in the cup inside the car. Where did that idea come from in the first place? One day Steven Spielberg called me from his car and said uh, that that he was listening to earth, wind and fire and his rear view mirror was shaking. That's what has to happen when the T-Rex arrives. As well as that, I wanna have a cup of water and I wanna have the water ripple. That's the way we're gonna see the arrival to the T-Rex.
7: This kicked off three weeks of long days and sleepless nights for Michael
2: and his team. Turns out, making those perfect circles was a lot harder than you might expect. What he really wanted was exact, timed, concentric rings starting from the center, moving its way out. So the obvious is, is you know, when you throw a rock into a pond, you get that, so we drop something into the, uh, the cup, and of course it does it. Now we had the issue of, you see what we're dropping, that uh, Steven did not want to see. We kept trying everything and just kept shooting video and showing Steven and we didn't quite get there. This all changed one fateful evening a few days before shooting the scene. One night I was up late with my son and we were playing with one of my guitars. I had a drink that I set on top of the face of the guitar and we were plucking and playing with it. And I noticed that the water began to ripple.
7: Michael had found his solution.
2: So I took a guitar string and ran it through the cup through the dashboard of the car, through the floorboard of the car, and tuned it. And when we plucked the string, the water began to ripple. And what did Steven have to say? When Steven saw the cup ripple, he had a big smile, and he just says, that is now the arrival of the T-Rex.
7: Michael Lantieri and the rest of the special effects team went on to win an Academy Award for their work on Jurassic Park. And I'm sure it was all because of those perfect, concentric water ripples.
2: You're the answer, son.
7: You're on a boat with Jeff Johns, who's the co-head of DC Films, I know you're making Justice League now, is the DCEU sort of pivoting and and maybe emphasizing those characters and, and going ahead in that direction? I wouldn't say that it's going in that direction necessarily, because what I would say is we haven't gone out there and said what our slate is. And there's, because we will do it when we're ready, and we have have the films that we're excited about. You're the answer, son. Yeah, I mean, I feel
5: can, we surprised. can't say much, but you're going to be, if you're a big fan of Superman, that I'm sure you're going to be very very happy to watch us. You
2: see that? You're the answer, son.